Welcome back to STEM Fatal, your women in science history podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Emlyn Gremlin. And I'm your other co-host, Dr. Emma Dilemma. And this week, I have a question for you, Emma. <gasps> you did it. You remembered. <laughs> it's not a good question, but I'm, oh. we're bringing it back. All right. Yes. Um, my question is, have you seen The Imitation Game? No. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, do you know what the imitation game is about? Somebody is imitating other people and just going around. It's about SNL, basically. Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. Interesting hypothesis. Okay, you clearly have not seen it. No, I'm Uh, sorry. Do you know what Enigma is? Like an Enigma or a movie named Enigma? The movie named Enigma or the World War II thing named Enigma. Hmm. No. <laughs> I'm so All right. Ignorant. Well, it's going <laughs> to. I don't know well, what anything you know, is. I, that's I'm not fine. Doing... This is just going to be a, a fresh. It's going to be so fresh for you. I know I'm supposed to yes and here, but I truly just don't know what those <laughs> things are. <laughs> I'm not trying to expose you. Uh-huh. It's this. Is, this is fine. This is a good place. This is supposed. You're supposed to learn. So mm-hmm. now there's lots to learn. Yeah. All right. Well, let's just get into it because there's well, no witty banter to talk about. When oh man, are you not going to tell me what they are? We'll get learn. to it. We'll get to it. But yeah. Okay. You, you wait your turn. I'll be kept in suspense, I guess, mm-hmm. about the imitation exactly. game and Enigma. Yes. I know. I mean, I've heard of them. I feel like I can, I can uh, vaguely picture the actors in Imitation Game. Like, why do mm-hmm. I think? Uh, what's that guy who was an Invisible Man? <laughs> Kevin Bacon. Is he in Imitation Game? Um, I don't know. I uh, Cumberbatch is. Cumberbatch. Oh, it's mm-hmm. about the computers. Yes. Computers. First computers. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Perfect. You got it. Is this about... Oh, oh my gosh. Okay. Go go on. (laughs) Go on. Okay. Sorry. It's all coming back to me now. Love it. Uh, Okay. So today we're going to talk about Joan Clark. Yay. (laughs) Are you just yaying? Are you just yesing? No, I just... I think I know what this is about now. Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, Joan Clark was born Joan Elizabeth Cother Clark on June 24th, 1917 in London, England to Dorothy and Reverend William Clark. She was the youngest child and she had three older brothers and one older sister. Cool. That's her childhood. We know nothing else. Okay. (laughs) Yep. I painted a really um, broad, broad picture. She had a family. That's it. She attended Dulwich High School for Girls in London and in 1936 won a scholarship to attend Newnham College in uh, at Cambridge. Mm, okay. It's one of the I think it was like one of the women's colleges associated with Cambridge. <laughs> ah, okay. 
There she gained a double first honors. All the British, like, education awards, I, like, don't quite understand. But I think a double first honors means she did really, really good on her math exams for her first year, which would give her a first first honors, and then also on her second year, which would give her double first honors. Double first honors. Okay. Yeah. So she just did really good in math. What or is in her a exams. First honor. Just she's the best? I think it's like A or okay, like A okay. plus. I think that's the equivalent. <clears throat> kind gotcha. of. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and then she was what's called a Wrangler. Ooh. Which is when you're fir- you get first class honors in your third year. Because you just I wrangled don't know. all the honors then? You wrangled all the honors. <laughs> <sighs> that is such a weird title, but I want it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I think Wrangler sounds like something that would be at, like, a Texas university. Yeah, right. It seems very out of place for it to be a UK yeah. thing. But hey, UK I don't know. listeners, let us know what this is all about. <laughs> Why did you do this? Why? <laughs> so despite these acclaims, as we've heard in many stories, she was denied a full degree what? Since they only awarded degrees to men until 1948. Oh my gosh. Why even so they, have people... Why let her go? Why? I understand. I mean, I guess yeah, so, it's still good to get an education, but just give them a degree. What's the big yeah. deal? They so she got work? what's called a title of degree, which is the same thing that, like, I, I forget who else we've talked about where this is the case, where they got right. some bullshit other title... Because they couldn't be given the same title as a man, even though they completed all the same requirements and were actually, like, competed against the men for these grades. But then at the end, they're in, they have to get an inferior degree. Right. I don't know. Because, because of women. someone's ego. I don't know. That's so insane to me. <sighs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it's so wild. Like, okay, we're going to let women into college, but we're not going to let them get a degree from college you're gonna do exactly the same things as the men but you're not as good because Mm -hmm. you're a woman it's like (laughs) yep i don't understand that it's insane Uh. i know okay anyways this is the case so she gets this title of degree and uh, but while she was in her undergraduate geometry cl- class at Cambridge, before she uh, was awarded her degree, or quote-unquote her degree, um, the professor Gordon Welchman noticed her mathematical ability. She was just a stellar student in math. Mm-hmm. And so Welchman was part was one of four top mathematicians at this time recruited to supervise decoding at Bletchley Park. Cool. And so Bletchley Park was this top top secret home uh, of the World War II code breakers, which was housed right. in this like English country house and estate, like very fancy. Um, <laughs> but that was this estate was where all of like the code breaking was happening. And so it's so, kind of parallel to like Langley that we talked uh-huh. about for okay. um, like some of the NASA stuff. And code breakers in America. And so they're reading documents that are written in code or signals that are coded. Do you know what kind of codes they were trying to break at that time? Um, 
so I, I imagine it's a bunch of different things, yeah. but what she will work on and what we'll get into is much more, I think, like signals. Okay. Like radio uh, so you, or like yeah, exactly. transmission. Okay. Mm-hmm. Those types of codes. Cool. So Welshman recruited Joan as part of the Government Code and Cipher School. Ooh. I'm going to call it GCCS for short at Bletchley Park due to her mathematical abilities. But wow. he hired her, but at the time he didn't tell her what her job was, so he didn't tell her that she would be a code breaker. He's just like, I've got a, a very good job for you. Yeah, something for you to do, Missy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Missy, exactly. <laughs> so the GCCS was started in 1939 at the beginning of World War II and was this, with the singular purpose of breaking the German Enigma codes. So... The Enigma, this is kind of really a basic rundown of what it was. It was more complicated than this. But the Enigma was a machine that scrambled the letters of the alphabet based on some secret key. So you could enter your message into Enigma, and it would push out an encrypted ciphertext that you could then send safely to, like over radio frequency or via mail or whatever, to a second party. I do not understand how things like that work. Do you? Uh, I I did when I took my cryptography class. Do I remember? (laughs) No, it went like I did fine in it, but I don't I don't remember anything about it. That's okay, Emlyn. But essentially, so you can send this ciphertext to another party. Okay. And then the receiving end would need to have another Enigma <clears throat> machine that has the same secret key wow. in order to decipher that message. Hmm. And so these keys were changed on a daily basis on these like secret key lists that were distributed in advance. Oh, so, okay, okay. Yeah, both you know, both the receiving end and the sending end would have the same list of keys of like every day what key you need to put in. And so therefore they could both translate um the cipher text when they got it okay but if you're sending so it must be electronically sent right yes because how okay okay because this <coughs> sorry i just choked <coughs> sorry um <laughs> you okay <coughs> do you oh have the gosh. rona i don't have the rona okay i was imagining them being sent by mail and then I was like well what if they send it on one day and then with, <laughs> and then the key is changed and they don't even know which key to use but that makes more sense yeah <laughs> they're same day messages makes sense same, same day messages right okay and so this Enigma machine so the ones that they were using in World War II were more complicated than this right um, but this was kind of like the the base nuts and bolts of the Enigma machine and the cool. Germans believed that their Enigma machines were unbreakable. Ooh. They believed. And so they believed. <laughs> I see where this is going. Ooh. I okay. see where this is going. Mm, 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 mm. Okay. When Joan arrived at the GCCS in June 1940, she was placed in an all-women group called The Girls. Oh, okay. Uh, who primarily did clerical work. Yes, these were all actually women. Yes, they did call all women girls. We could deal, we can talk about that, but it is what it is. It's, yeah, I mean, 
I can't. You know, it's <laughs> it's bad. Wait, there's a I... man in here. <laughs> Wait. <God. laughs> okay. I just like turn so like I'm in the dark. Uh-huh. And I have um like a sheet surrounding me to oh like filter gosh. the sound and I just look back and there's like a shadowy man. <laughs> it's on it's fine. It's Andres, right? <laughs> yeah, he's supposed he's supposed to be here. It's fine. <laughs> Okay, there's a man. I'm like, wait, should I be worried? <laughs> what if you like been we're recording a, a podcast in the middle of of a crime? <laughs> oh my gosh. What would I do, Emlyn? Oh my gosh. I'd probably call Andres, but what if he's oh my I can't even think this through. Okay. <laughs> it's going to the darkest places. Okay. <laughs> oh god, there's just an arm behind the <laughs> It's terrifying. Okay, he's gone. We're all safe now. <laughs> it was truly uh, terrifying. Nothing surprises me now, though. I was just like, oh, there's a man in the room? <laughs> I just am numb. I'm numb. Nothing will surprise oh, me now. <laughs> no, it's true. Okay, so uh, she came into Bletchley Park and they put her in this all-women's group called The Girls to do clerical work. Right. And at this time, nearly 7,000 people worked at Bletchley Park. Wow. And two-thirds of them were women. Wow. But at this time, none of the women were uh, cryptanalysts, which are like the code breakers. Right. Okay. Too, it requires too much thinking, Emlyn. <laughs> yeah. We can't. We don't we have can't. the brain power. All right. However, within a few days of Joan being there, her mathematical abilities became clear to all, and she was soon put in the Hut 8 section, where she worked directly with Alan Turing and other male cryptanalysts. Wow. So all the huts, essentially, they're on this, like, really nice um, estate, and they've just built all these ramshackle huts for different groups. Like these little wooden shacks. So she's in shack eight. Okay. Yeah. And so to give you a little visual Alan, visualization. And she's with Alan Turing? Yes. Oh, so this mm-hmm. is where we get to the what is it? Imagineer? What's the movie? Imitation game? Imitation game. <laughs> Why am I like mixing up all these movies? <laughs> I'm like, it's, uh, it has Kevin Bacon. It's called the Imagineer, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's about magic. Um, so, so when she got there, the title of cryptanalyst was reserved for men, and there were no protocols in place to hire a female cryptanalyst. So they what? all just threw up their hands and were like, well, I guess she can't be a cryptanalyst. Uh, what protocols um, are necessary? You just like just change them. You're also human. Yes, you can do this too. (laughs) There doesn't need to be a protocol. It's the same one that's used for men. Just use that one. That's the protocol. (laughs) But they decided they were like, oh well, we want to give her a little higher pay and some some more credit in recognition for her workload. Yeah, appreciate it. So instead, they promoted her to linguist which could be a female job. Oh, okay. Just Though she spoke no other language. Who made these rules? Because <laughs> I'm going just change them. You know what? 
They don't have to be those rules. You could change them. <laughs> yeah, it's like... That's <sighs> very silly. And she didn't speak any other languages. Except no, so... the language of computing, I guess. Yes. yes. So she says she took you know later on in her life she took great pleasure in filling out forms where they where they asked what her job was and she would say linguist but with no languages <laughs> that's funny <laughs> i mean she spoke english but no other languages so yeah so she was a linguist that was her position wow because we can't have women and men have the same job no 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 of course not I'm getting riled up this morning. Maybe it's the coffee. Maybe it's the chocolate. Maybe it's the righteous indignation. Yeah, just the the 2020 of it all. Maybe it's the fact that there was a shadowy man behind me. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Just surprising. There's a man. <laughs> Did not like it. All right. So in Hut 8, uh, Hut 8 was responsible for deciphering codes being sent between Germany and their U-boats, so the su- German submarines. Oh, cool. And so these messages that were being sent using Enigma between the Germans and the U-boats were allowing the Germans to hunt down Allied ships carrying troops and supplies that were crossing from the U.S. to Europe. Wow. So they were just be- being able to get intelligence to the U-boats and then just bomb and explode these allied ships carrying supplies and troops. So this was a big problem. Yeah, okay. And so while in Hut 8, she quickly earned great respect from her co-workers for her talent, perseverance, and ingenuity. Nice. And Rolf Nosquith, who (laughs) wrote about the inner workings of Hut 8, said, (laughs) quote, it was a tribute to her to... It was a tribute to her ability that her equality with the men was never in question, even in those unenlightened days. Wow, that's good. Mm-hmm. At least it sounds like they treated her like anyone else, even though... Yeah, I think they wanted to hire her as a cryptanalyst. Right. Like those those rules, those protocols. Hut 8 sounds fun. <laughs> like, I just am envisioning all these little huts and everybody excitedly... Working on their codes. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Seems like kind of fun. Yeah. So at this time, Turing and Clark uh, became great friends with Turing arranging their shifts ah. so that they could work together. Oh, wow. Now we're really be- best buds. And in early 1941, Turing proposed marriage to Clark. What? Clark agreed and he introduced her to his family. That's crazy. Did they get married? No. Wouldn't you like to know? They didn't, did they? I'm not going (laughs) to say anything. So the next day, Turing privately told Clark that he had, quote, homosexual tendencies. Right. Uh, Clark said, quote, naturally, that worried me a bit because I did know that was something which was almost certainly permanent, but we carried on. So she knew that he was gay, but she was like, I'll still marry you. Yeah, different times. Different times. I mean, it was horribly illegal to be gay in UK at this time. Yeah, and I'm surprised he was even so honest with her, but it seems like, I don't know, I guess he was honest and 
she was cool with it, and mm-hmm. that's what it was. That's what happened. Wow, but I had ter- no idea he was married. You know, I definitely never watched the imitation game. Mm-hmm. Clearly. Well, Turing decided he couldn't go through with the marriage after all, oh. and so broke it off with Clark a few months later. Aw. Yeah. Gotcha. However, they remained dear friends until Turing's death in 1954. Wow. And according to Graham Moore, who wrote the screenplay for The Imitation Game, he says, quote, they were, su- they were both such outsiders, and that gave them some common ground. Oh, um, that's sweet. And they also shared each other's passions in addition to, like, really liking code breaking. Yeah. Um, their passions such as chess and puzzles, botany, and on occasion they even knit together. Aw, that's cute. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It made me very happy. Yeah. It seemed like a great little little ragtag Coding, group. botany, and knitting. That sounds yeah. really nice. <laughs> yeah, I know. Then in 1940, a breakthrough was achieved after the disguised armed trawler called Polaris <gasps> was seized by uh, her mag- uh, HMS Griffin in the North Sea uh-huh. on... April 26, 1940. So the Allies were able to catch one of these um, disguised, like uh, this boat that was disguised as a trawler that was actually a German boat. That's so scary. And so the Germans didn't have time to destroy all of their cryptographic documents. <gasps> um, and the captured material revealed really important information that allowed Hut 8 to use this this crypt analytic process called Bamberismus, which oh. was developed by Alan Turing to decipher German encrypted messages. Bamberismus? Bamberism. I don't know why it's called that. It's very long and hard to pronounce. Interesting. But essentially, Bamberismus was a Bayesian uh, sequential procedure that used weights of evidence, such as the information that they got from that trawl to infer the probable settings of the Enigma machine. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah. So once they got some of this information of uh, various different, I think they got some like keys and they got um, a, an, in, an encoded and an unencoded text script. So they had information that they could then put in as weights of evidence to this pr- process to try to understand probably what the Enigma machine, how it was working. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. So Clark became the only female practitioner of the Bamberismus. <laughs> and she was... <laughs> the name is just she, funny, not her. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's weird. She was so excited about this work that she ref- often would refuse to hand over her work to the next shift and would stay on to do more more tests to see if they could crack the codes. Aw, that's awesome. She also devised a way to s- uh, greatly speed up a new statistical method for decoding, but was given none of the credit at the time. Oh, okay. They, like, named it after someone else. What like the hell? she, Yeah, so, like, someone devised this new method... And then she made it a lot better, and mm. then they just named it after him, which cool. is kind of the way it goes. Yeah. Yeah. So her job at Hut 8 was to break these ciphers, so, so these um, encrypted messages. And she had to do it in real time <gasps> as the Germans were sending these messages oh to U boats. Oh, my gosh. 
And this was one of the most high-pressure jobs at Bletchley, according to Michael Smith, who is an author of several books about the Enigma Project. Okay. And so after Clark would decode the message, this would result in immediate military action, such as sinking a U-boat if they could or circumnavigating it so that the Allied troops and supplies could arrive to Europe unharmed. Wow. So she was... So, like, really really high-intensity work. Yeah. Good thing she was good at it. Yeah. Imagine if you decoded incorrectly. (gasps) Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I'm sure, you know, like, they were decoding things all the time, like, daily, maybe multiple times per day. So, like, I'm sure some of them did get it wrong or they couldn't crack some of them, but... Right. (sighs) Yeah. Sounds intense. Yeah. So Clark, Turing, and their team at Hut 8 used these codes to minimize how much you the U-boats could sink their cargo ships. Before they were able to crack these codes, 282,000 tons of goods were sunk every month. (gasps) Wow. But after they were able to crack these codes, it reduced that number to 62,000 tons. So obviously they're not able to, you know, save all of the boats, not able to maybe... um, to decipher all of the codes, but they brought that down, the number of goods that were being destroyed and lives that were being lost to, you know, cut it down by four, by four, at least four times. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty remarkable and a pretty big impact. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So in 1944, Clark became deputy head of Hut 8, but was prevented from further progressing due to her gender, so she could only be deputy head. And she was still paid less than her male colleagues. Why? Because of sexism. Sexism. (laughs) Should we start a band? (laughs) I think we should start a little ditty. Never we... If we if we had a little ditty for every time there was sexism, though, the whole podcast would be in yeah. Song it would form. just be playing that over and over and over again. <laughs> All right. In 1946, after the war ended, um, due to her role in the Enigma Project, she was appointed as the member of the Order of the British Empire, which is like Ooh. a big big deal. It always sounds so Star Warsy. I know, I agree. Like the whole The British Empire is wild. Kind of like that, yeah. Yeah. With um, all their after, Wranglers. With all their Wranglers. Yeah, such weird names. <laughs> so after World War II ended, Clark worked for the government communications headquarters, which was essentially like the successor of Bletchley Park and the GCCS after the war. Okay. And there she met Lieutenant Colonel... Uh, John Kenneth Ronald Murray, a retired army officer who had served in India. Oh. Ooh. And they hit it off. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> so they were married in July 1952 in her father's church. Aw. However, found shortly after She found love. Uh, however, shortly after their marriage, John Murray began to have ill health. No. And so he retired to Scotland. So he just couldn't work anymore. Oh, okay. And she moved to Scotland with him, but continued to work for the government communications headquarters uh, for the next about 20 years. Wow. Oh, my gosh. 
So in her husband's retirement, he had long he had published on Scottish coinage of the 16th and 17th centuries uh-huh. and had gained interest in numis- numismatics history, which is the study of coins. Okay, okay. So he's a coin collector, I guess. But like the history of coins. I don't even I'm not maybe he collected them too. You got to collect them. If you're I that so. into coins, that's true. You that's must true. collect. <laughs> I would think. I I would hope. <laughs> so, so her husband died in 1986, and Clark moved to Headington, Oxfordshire, and got and herself got into coinage research. Uh huh. So she established the temporal sequence of a complex series of gold unicorn and heavy groat coins that were in what? circulation in Scotland during the reigns of James the Third and James the Fourth. Essentially, there was a bunch of different coins apparently that were like a series of coins. So I'm guessing what that means is they were clearly like similar coins, but you know maybe made at different times. Huh. Okay. And so, like, one was called the gold unicorn, unicorn coins, which sounds awesome. Yeah. And then the other ones were these groat, heavy groat coins. And so she was able to like look at these coins and figure out the sequence, the temporal sequence, like when this coin must have been in circulation, when I this coin see. must have been in circulation. So they didn't have years on them. In those, I days? guess not. Yeah. Or I guess they could still have a year, but I don't know. Okay. Interesting. And so she had a real... Go away. Not you. The man again? No. no, uh, (laughs) I don't know. It's just my phone being a... No, the man is not here. I don't think. Let me look. No, there's no... No one's in my room. (laughs) I'm so scared. Uh, She had a real knack for analyzing this data... And this research was recognized in 1986 by the British Numism- Numismatic Society, where she was awarded the Sanford Saltus Gold Medal wow. um, for her paper on the gold unicorn coins, which was described as magisterial. Oh, my gosh. I want to see this coin. <laughs> I know. Maybe I'll try to find it. Um. So additionally, in the 1980s, she assisted Sir Harry Hensley with the book quote, called British Intelligence in the Second World War. She Ooh. also assisted historians studying the code-breaking work done at Bletchley Park. But due to secrecy among cryptanalysts, we don't fully understand uh, Joan's full accomplishments. Kind of similar right. to how we don't really know all the work that uh, Mary Golda Ross did because she was part of that secret skunk 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 work yeah skunk works yeah yeah and so similarly we don't really know specifically her contributions her life also is rather mysterious she never talked about her personal background and was awkward in public respect um (laughs) but she did have passions such as her coinage and mathematics and and botanical work chess and knitting yeah right yeah i mean how many, I wonder how many people tried to interview her over the years. I found one interview, but it was mostly uh, asking her about her engagement to Alan Turing. Oh, right. Of course. Yeah. Because he's like, 
I mean, he is so famous yeah. basically for inventing computers, right? Yeah. This is his deal. Yeah, for a lot of like modern technologies based yeah. on some of that work. Right. So Joan Clark died on September 4th, 1996. And Clark wow. was... Pro- yeah, she Sorry. recently... Yeah. She <laughs> lived... What, she was born in like 17 or something like that? So she... Mm-hmm. 80 or so? Yeah. Nice long life. A nice long life. And Clark was portrayed by Kira Knightley, opposite uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, for the film Imitation Game. Nice. And there's been mixed feelings about her portrayal in Imitation okay. Game. So Alan Turing's biographer, Andrew Hodges, argued that it built up the relationship between Clark and Turing, which is probably true. They make things. I haven't seen, I haven't seen the movie in a long time. But, you know, Hollywood likes to make things more romantic. I think right. they were really good friends. Like when I watched the interview about her engagement, she was like, yeah, you know, we went to the movies and we were friends and really close. But it was a surprise when he asked me to marry him. It was so, like, a I don't surprise? Think they w- yes, it was a oh, surprise. Okay, yeah. Um, so, so it I don't sounds think- like, yeah, their relationship was maybe never romantic. Yes. And then yeah. he proposed... Which, you know, people just married to marry, you know, just more mm-hmm. tradition then. But that's interesting. Yeah. yeah, I've never seen the movie, but I wouldn't be surprised if they made it into like some romance where he was mm-hmm. deceiving her or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. But no, he seems very open to her. Yeah. About, about the fact that he was gay. Yeah. Um, in contrast, however, the director, Morton Tildum, argues that the movie shows how Clark succeeded in her field, quote, when intelligence wasn't really appreciated in women. Yeah. And so I think in Hollywood movies, often you have to, like, in order, if you, if you want to, like, highlight a woman in her contribution, she also have, you have to emphasize the love aspect, which is Ugh. BS, but whatever. All right. So her, her, her obituary says, quote, although the remaining secret... Although the remaining secrecy associated with cryptanalysts still makes it impossible to be more specific about her accomplishments, it is clear that her work on the naval enigma helped to shorten the war and saved many lives on both sides of the conflict. Uh, Yeah. Additionally, because Enigma Project remains so secretive and... Historically, there's a lack of appreciation for the work of women. The role and contributions of other women who worked at the GACCS and at Benchley Park uh, are completely unknown. So we know that there were other codebreakers, such as Margaret Rock, Mavis Lever, and Ruth Briggs, but we know even less about them. Though I did find that there was a book about her and the the other uh, female codebreakers that I'll try to link in the description. Is it called The Code Breakers? It might be. I don't know. That might be a different a book about a different group of women. (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of women code breakers that didn't get their credit. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, So, yeah. So we don't know too much about her, but we know even less about some of the other women that contributed to the Enigma Project. Do you think we really mostly know about her because of her association with Alan Turing? Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of it came from work f- 
for the book that then led to Imitation Game. I don't know if it's called The Imitation Game. But there was a lot of research that had to get done to to find out more about her work. Yeah. And then just to end on a really low note, which isn't about <gasps> women, but I didn't know that Alan Turing, so, you know, after the war, like, he was a great hero because he had, like, helped end the war and saved lots of troops and lives. Right. But then they found out that he was gay. And they gave him an ultimatum of either going to jail or being chemically castrated. Yeah. And then. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah. So just sad. People are awful. And (laughs) (laughs) that's the end of my story. Sorry on a bummer note. But I just (laughs) thought that, like, even though we mostly talk about women, you know, Alan Turing, yes, he got a lot of praise and he's really famous for his work, but yeah. he also was so discriminated against once he was found out to be gay. That's really terrible. Yeah, it's really sad that, I don't know, he couldn't just be himself. Yeah. Just like people's mind your own, mind your own business about people like it doesn't bother you. Right. Okay, we can't get into this, but like, I, I don't yeah, understand. I just, I'm it, sort of in Matt, shock. It makes no difference just... to your life. Leave people alone. Right. That's what's so insane. It's like, why do you care? You know, that's how yeah. how I feel about it. Like, someone being <sighs> gay doesn't make you any less straight, and some and a woman being the same, having the same title as you, doesn't make it any less valuable. Right. Like. I, other people's freedoms don't limit yours. All right, that's I'm off my my spiel is done. Good day, sirs. <laughs> no, and I madams. love it. I love it. I could listen to you talk like this for hours, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> oh man. Having someone break into your room really revs you up in the morning. <laughs> break into your room in the <laughs> house that you share. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, that's my story. I love it. That was really good. I liked hearing about her. I didn't know. I thought you were actually going to talk about someone else, um, but that was really good. Yay, I'm glad you liked it. Yeah. Yeah, I did not know about her till Andres told me about her, and I love yeah. when people do my work for me. I was like, great, I'll do her. <laughs> that sounds perfect. Oh, for real. Yeah. Okay. Let me find my thing. Okay, welcome to our Women Who Work section, where we shout out badass ladies making history today. And, Emlyn, you're gonna... These people are gonna sound very familiar to you. They're gonna (laughs) sound what? Very familiar to you. Because... This week, I'm going to shout out two of our friends slash, slash colleagues from our time at UT. Um, I love it. This Why is not? Kelly Wallace and <gasps> yes! Julia York. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I actually haven't read this paper, but I saw it and I. It's meant really to. good. Yeah. Um, so they just published a paper this week in Ecology and Evolution Journal called A Systems Change Framework for Evaluating Academic Equity and Inclusion in an Ecology and Evolution Graduate Program. Yes. So Kelly and Julia are both 
grad students, PhD students in our old uh, grad program in evolution and ecology. And before we graduated, they essentially started this whole project, which is evaluating, you know, DEI, like diversity, equity, inclusivity issues in our department, and then determining solutions to all those problems, which is not something grad students should be doing, but they're doing it and they're doing a really good job. That's Um, yes, that's amazing. I mean, grad students should be part of it, but it's just, it sucks that like at such an hard time in your career, you know, maybe someone older with more job security and finances and power could be initiating these projects. That would be really nice, but of course it's not happening. Um, So in this paper, Kelly and Julia lay out the problem that minority groups in the sciences do not often stay in academia, right? Yes. And this is because of systemic issues in academia rather than personal issue, you know, individual kind of issues as maybe was portrayed for so long. Mm -hmm. Um, So to solve this problem, they argue that changes need to be systemic, which makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You can't, there's no like one solution to this major issue, which is that maybe you see like that a grad program has 50% 50% women, 50% men, but that's not represented as in the faculty stages. And then, of course, um, yeah. yeah. Okay. So with that, they lay out an approach for how programs, like graduate programs specifically, can evaluate their efforts to determine if they are indeed addressing every level of systemic change that is necessary. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm yeah. probably not gonna. I'm probably not gonna explain this as well as they do. It's a very easy to read paper. So I, um, so if you're in a graduate program and or um, in charge of one or in academia, I highly recommend reading to see the plan that they lay out. So okay, here we go. So they first, so they basically develop a systems change framework to categorize most common gaps in support for graduate students, which allows them to see the water of the system and categorize recent programmatic efforts to address those concerns. So the first thing they did was they collected data on our graduate program, which Mm -hmm. I remember taking all the surveys and everything, right? When, before we graduated. Yeah, I've definitely taken surveys by them. Yeah, which sure. was they were they were interested in hearing what were the most common concerns in our graduate program in regards to any kind of DEI issue from what yeah. I remember. Yeah, and from what they said in the paper too. Mhm. Um and then the next step was to identify what efforts were already in place to address these different types of concerns and then to evaluate where efforts were overlapping and where efforts were still needed or limited and what the success of different efforts are. So really, 
Um, they're looking at not just one issue in DEI and trying to address that, but they came up with a framework for looking at all of the issues, which ones were being addressed, and which ones still needed any efforts in place, right? Mm -hmm. And kind of mapping out um, DEI at its core rather than dealing with one issue at a time. And I think that that it's... The way they lay it out probably makes more sense than me explaining it, but um, it's a really nice paper to read and just really proud of their efforts and can't believe they're, they even have the time to be doing all of this <laughs> while trying to get their PhDs. I know. So, no, it's very impressive. Cool. Yeah. It. <laughs> it, I, I'm going to have to read this paper because I have a lot of thoughts having been in this department right right but i do think it makes sense to try to look at this wider scale of what are all the issues what are the plans we have in place how are they doing and what areas are just do do we have nothing in place to address this group of concerns yeah exactly and what i liked about it is that it really points out which concerns are being addressed and it's Mm -hmm. often um and there's just major gaps essentially which is you know there's all there's various like implicit bias trainings or um i don't know yeah i don't know actually i can't remember the specifics now so i'm gonna stop talking (laughs) does it seem like it would be easy to transfer this to other departments. Like, does it read like you could take their approach and apply it to your own department? Yeah, because I think, yeah, because they're not offering solutions specifically to every graduate program. Mm -hmm. They're just laying out how they evaluated DEI efforts in our program using this framework. So I think you can take their what they did and apply it to any program because it's just saying where are we missing policies or not Mm -hmm. you know it's not saying which policies do we need to implement right now or because that's going to be different for every program yeah so that's sort of part of their whole argument is that you know we need to involve all of the stakeholders in these decisions and look at things from many different perspectives. So they can't provide the answers for every graduate program in the world, especially because so many some issues are specific to different fields even. Yeah, um, for sure. But they, it is a nice framework, I think, just for any program to say, like, use these steps, basically. Look at the concerns, look at the policies in place, and identify gaps. I think anybody mm-hmm. could do that, for sure. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Yeah, I think so often just having that framework open is something that is often a hurdle for departments. Like they don't want to create their own framework, but if there's one that they can utilize, they're more likely to do that and try to look at these these gaps. Right. Like instead of just having one diversity and equity workshop, (laughs) it's like – okay, what is, which concerns is that workshop actually addressing here? Mm-hmm. And which concerns are just still not being met by any 
programs or or uh, policies. That's so. amazing. I will have to read it. It's been on my list, and yeah, it's I good. haven't it's pretty... done any of my list. <laughs> it's a <laughs> so. pretty straightforward. It's not overly complicated. When I mm. first saw it, I was like, systems change frame- framework. Oh, no. Like, my, <laughs> is this going to be way over my head? And then once I actually read it, I was just like, oh, wow, this is really interesting and pretty um manageable like for anyone to read yeah Yeah. no i'm sure they want to make it as user-friendly as possible so it actually is applied to other programs and things like that yeah so anyway good job you guys (laughs) i love it i love local local shout outs great job i hope i didn't totally butcher it (laughs) let me know (laughs) yeah julia kelly let us know we'll have you uh, help us out Hopefully, hopefully we did you justice. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's the end of our episode. Yeah. Happy fall. Yeah, it's getting cooler. It's, fall sure. it's now October. So I have seen all of the Halloween things are getting put out and I'm very for it. I know. It's like apple season. It's cooler. The leaves are changing. I love it. Mm-hmm. Pumpkins. So I hope everybody is enjoying the fall weather. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the episode, if you like this podcast, please share it with friends. Uh, Rate us on iTunes. All of those things really help. Um, Thanks to uh, Caitlin Friesen for our awesome artwork, to Artichoke for our theme music, and go stimulate yourself. Go stimulate yourself. Bye. 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 Circa 1820, she ran a fossil